Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Impactful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to an acclaimed documentarian about sports nicknames derived from Native American nicknames. But first, we're joined by an old friend. We go back a long way. He's the author of a new book, Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. The one and only longtime Mets public relations guru, Jay Horowitz. Jay, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, it's a pleasure to be with you, really. It's a pleasure to be okay, speak to anyone with the last name Shap. It means a lot to me. Now, Jay, I, I've got to say there are a few things that we have to discuss before we even get to the specifics of the book, which is just a treat. But I, I, I will confess, I think my first memories, there's no reason for you to remember this. You were very busy in 1986. But in 1986... Um, I was an avid Mets fan, and I tried to go to as many home games as possible, including the playoffs. And there were occasions, Jay, on which I think you might have sneaked me into the press box when I didn't have a ticket. Do you, do you have any memory of this? Is this a, something you're willing to confess to? I, I, I do. And I tell you what, you can blame your late father for that, Jeremy. Because when, when, I, when I was at Fairly, Fairly Dickinson, and Dick, Dick was doing sports on, on, on NBC, I used to call him three times a week with all these cockamamie stories, a one-armed fencer, a priest who played hockey, <laughs> a freshman football player, uh, blah, 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 blah. And Mr. Chap was nice enough to put him on the air for me. And really, he was kind of responsible for me getting a job at the med school or all the notoriety we got at Fairly Dickinson. When I left to go to the Mets, uh, Dick and Jim Bowden were nice enough to MC my going away dinner. It was really just a tremendous thrill for me to have two people like that come in all the way to New Jersey to do something for me, something I'll never, ever, ever forget. Well, he was a big Jay Horowitz fan, and I remember specifically having the conversation with my father about how totally impressive it was the job you did at tiny fairly Dickinson. I don't think it was just WNBC. As I recall, I think I think you pitched him at least two stories about fairly Dickinson athletes, the ones you mentioned, that ended up on the NBC Nightly News with John Chancellor. Yeah, it was great. Two of my favorites, Jeremy, were we had Franklin Jacobs, who was a high jumper, who jumped two feet over his head. He won the Milrose Games one year. And we had Steve Dembowski, who was a baseball player, five foot five guy, who set an NCAA record, who got hit by a pitch 128 times in four years. And one spring, we had 11 cameras come out to see us play. He got hit every time for the cameras. It was truly amazing. We're speaking with Jay Horowitz, who's been working uh, for the New York Mets as their head of public relations, head of communications, now in an emeritus position of sorts for the last couple of years. His new book is Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. Jay, um, even now, 34 years later, people... Think about the 86 Mets, of course, because they were world champions. But more than that, they were a collection of characters and there was drama and there was off the field uh, stuff going on. 
What was it like being in the middle of that collection of talent and characters? Jerry, you never knew what was going to happen when you got to the ballpark that day. Who is going to do what? What's going to happen? You know, I'm going to get called into the office to do something. You know what about all those guys? You know, you know Daryl and Doc and Keith and Wally. You know, no matter what they did on or off the field, they always stood up and in front of their lockers and, and and spoke the truth. And that's why all those guys are so beloved, even today. When all this stuff that went on, and you know, and they, they just just stood there and you know, like Daryl and Doc have really turned their lives around. You know, Daryl's a minister. Doc does a lot of good work with with with, with high schools and, and hospitals. It was just a crazy time. I mean, you never, you just never knew. We had visit. Mike Tyson came in. And saw us during the year. We probably got like six or seven bench clearing ball, brawls, and you know when when it went Cincinnati one time, and and Eric Davis slides it to Ray Knight, and Ray Knight gets up and clocks him. I mean, they hated us. They absolutely hated the Mets, and and because we were cocky, it really stems with the manager, Davy Johnson. You know, he believed we would win, and I'm and I take it back. And in, in the uh, after the um, uh, welcome home dinner in '86, we were we were two and three. After the first two series, right. Davey told the people, don't worry, we're not going to lose many more games the rest of the year. <laughs> so we lost 51 more games after that from the rest of the year. So it's just really proud. And those guys treated me well. They took me under their wing. And Keith and those guys were great. And, you know, being around them, it's something and I'll never forget. One of the things I, I vividly remember, and thanks to you, Jay, I, I think I was at games one, six, and seven of the World Series. And... And uh, sitting in the Sports Channel box with Tim McCarver and those guys and Xander Hollander and Ray Robinson and my dad who was working the series. And after Game 7, the Mets complete that spectacular comeback in Game 6, then come back two nights later, win Game 7. I have this vivid memory of being down in the clubhouse or maybe it was the press conference room and Mike Torres walks in and he's screaming, I'm off the hook, I'm off the hook. Do you remember that? I feel I do, like I, I do remember that. Yeah, because that was the, the famous Bucky Dent home run. You know yeah, which mean? is a different team. So it's, it, I mean, it's it was a weird thing. But there was there were so many things that went on. There were so many great moments with the '86 Mets. You know, and of course we can't talk about those teams that you were around without talking about Gary Carter, the late great Gary Carter. Yeah, he is. Uh, he was a mensch, as we say in the religion. I mean, I, you know, I, I, that 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 year. I mean, in 2011, you know, I broke my ankle, and Gary called me religiously every every week. How you doing, Jay? How you doing? You know, this is kid. How you doing? And this is in the midst where he had was just diagnosed with brain cancer. I remember the January of the following year. You know, Jeff Wolfon got a plane, and we went down to see Gary in his home in, in West Palm Beach. And, you know, he was really struggling at the time. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to beat this. And what a great guy to be around. You know, I mean, he, you know, he, he just, he did so much for the team. But, but you know, he he was, you know, he just got both ends. He, his mom, he always thought he was going to die early, uh, Jeremy. His mom died of leukemia. You know, he died at 57. And, and you know, just a play, pleasure to be around. He really was, a, was just a great guy, and he did so much on and off the field. Is you know, uh, really pleasure to have consider him a good friend. Again, we're speaking with Jay Horowitz's new book, Mr. Med, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. What were the final numbers? 37 years as the head of PR communication? Well, it was 30, 
38. Sorry. Years, I didn't, I didn't want to shortchange you. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, two, and this is my, uh, is my alumni director. You know, I mean, you know, you know what I'm doing, Jeremy? I really like what I'm doing. To be honest with you, when I first, when Jeff Wilpott first proposed it to me, I wasn't crazy about it because I like the camaraderie of the locker room. I like to travel. But you know what, though? I feel like we're making a difference now because we, you know, we didn't really reach out to a lot of the alumni. We started with the 60, 50th anniversary, the 69 team. Example, a couple of months ago, I called Toby Landruff on the phone. Toby's in his early 90s. He was the first pick of the Mets in the 61 wow. draft. And he said to me, I'm, I'm the first guy in 50 years from the organization who called him. And that made me feel good. You know, we're letting these guys know we care. Yeah, bring him back into the family. So it's it's a good thing, you know. And I I think we're trying to do some good. We brought him back last year for for the home games. They do autograph stuff, and so it's it's good to reconnect with a lot of these. I work with most of them. That shows how old I am. I have to say, Jay, one of, one of my biggest regrets uh, in this business is that I could not convince you to do a story for ESPN about your notorious penchant for butt dialing. Uh, former players. I, I tried. I begged you. You wouldn't do it. So this is the Wall Street Journal. It was first wrote kind of the definitive account. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how I did that, Jeremy. You know, I would keep the phone on my. I would butt dial these crazy guys. I would butt dial Duki Hernandez. I, I was honored. I got butt dialed at like three in the morning once. You must have been on the West Coast, and you barely ever called me. It was it was a thrill. One time I bucked on Dave Magan during the game, and he went at the clock and he said, can't you see him at first base? What are you doing calling me? And I didn't even realize he was doing it half the time. I mean, I'm, I'm mature now. I, ha- I have a cell phone now. But you know what I do with my big mistake now is I don't shut the phone off a lot. And sometimes I might say something maybe on tours about someone I just hung up with. And a lot of times the people... I get a call. I heard that, Jay. <laughs> Check your phone off. You know, I'm not mechanically inclined, Jeremy. What can I tell you? I do some things well. I'm not mechanically inclined. Allow me to be serious for a moment, though. Yes, sir. From from your, you know, to do the job you did in the maelstrom that is the New York sports media marketplace, and especially with that team over the years, where there were so many controversy, controversies and there were great years and there were tough years. I think of 1993, being around the team a lot in 93, which was, you know, an epic failure, as they say now. How, to what do you attribute, this is the kind of question my dad would ask, to what do you attribute your longevity? Dad, I never lied. Maybe I didn't tell the truth all, all, all the time. I, I get to, to get to try, a good PR guy has to get the players to trust him. You know, and, and when things are bad, if I would go to play, hey, you, you got to be in front of your locker. You got to do this. And, and the players, and it's really, the PR guy, you have three masters. You have the ownership who hired you, the players, and the media. And you got to walk the line. But to, we, we get to exist in the locker room, the players have to know you can be trusted, that they'll have your back. And if things are bad, you know, like I would always tell, hey, listen, get it over with, you know, be in front of your locker. And and I just tried not to lie, and I think all three facets that I dealt with knew that I told the truth, and knew that I was a dedicated, loyal med, med employee, and I had everybody's best interests at heart, and that was really enabled me to exist all these years. Because you can't, you know, the market, Jeremy. Once you get caught in a lie, or, or or you tell somebody something that's not true, you lose your credibility. And I think for all these years. I was able to keep my credibility intact. That probably was why I was able to succeed, whatever, to, to get by for 40 years. And, and the title of your book, it really is true. You did become like family 
to generations of players. And sometimes that's, that's a relationship with a lot of friction, of course. And, um, you know, there are, is more media now than ever before. Um, who are the guys over the years that you became closest to? Well, I, I, everybody asked me that, Jeremy. It's hard to have a one eight. There's a lot of there's a lot of ones, you know. Um, Johnny Franco, David Wright, Gary Carter, Mookie, um, uh, you know, Al Leiter, Robin Ventura. I was really blessed with being around a lot of good guys, you know. And it, most of these guys, you know, Doc and Daryl, I'm still friendly with. And you know, really, really had a big influence in my career was Joe Torre, my first manager, in like in 1980. Joe always likes to tell people I got him fired the next year. But on our first road trip, he he took me. He, we met all the. We, we took me to a Thai store in in uh, on Saint Catherine Street in Montreal. He bought me seven of the ugliest ties. These big fat ties. Had to wear them every day. But Joe took me around. He met. He introduced me to Pete Rose, to Reggie Jackson, to everybody. He is our new PR guy. You know, and he Joe told me what it was to how to get around and how to exist in a in a locker room. And uh, and uh, I'll be eternally grateful to him. But you know, through the years, I I can, the other side of it, I can honestly tell you, a guy I didn't get along with. Everybody says, well, how about Dave Kingman? You know, Dave Kingman actually lived at my house in Clifton for about two weeks, and when he came back to us in 1980, the early 80s, he didn't have a place to live, so I offered him a spare bedroom, and we commuted for about two weeks together, back and forth to New York, and he paid for the toll. Notoriously hard to get along with Dave Kingman. I never met him. I don't recall ever meeting him. He was before my time. But, I mean, Dave Kingman, with all due respect, is someone nobody seemed to get along with. I, You know, and we, we got him back the second time, he got, it was his idea, he, he gave out pens to the writers at the press conference. And I just, you know, I, it goes back to what I said before. I just let these guys that I, that I care, and I try to treat the 25th guy like the number one guy, you know, and not to show any favoritism. Because the guys that pick on them, they're always going to the stars. You know, the 25th guy calls it for a favor, you take care of the guy. And the other guys will see how you treat everybody. And that's, you know, but I mean, we were a lot of great guys, you know, and, you know, and Davey and Bobby Valentine and, you know, Terry Collins and, well, the Matt and Willie Randolph. And I've been really fortunate. You know, I never got married, Jeremy. And this became my family. And, you know, and, and I was fortunate enough to be around a lot of good guys. I have a vivid memory, Jay. You talk about the 25th guy. And again, I'm using the phrase with all due respect. I would say at one point in 1987, I think it was Bill Allman would have been that 25th guy, right? Yes, the guy from Brown, right, right. Yeah, guy from Brown, number one overall pick, I think, in 74. And I have this vivid memory, tell me if I'm imagining this, of him winning a game with a walk-off hit in the ninth of the tenth off Lee Smith, who at the time was the most dominating closer. I mean, there were just those kinds of miraculous moments. The one, you know, in terms of the baseball, the one that still must be um, tough to take – was what happened in 88 with the Dodgers. That was probably the worst. We were in the ninth inning. I think we're winning. We're three to one. I forget the score was. Dwight is, is cruising along. Yeah. And he gives up a home run to Socha. Yeah. You know, and, and, and he, I, I, he got like X amount of batters in a row. And that really, you know, we came back to get it to game seven. But I, I, if we had won that game, I think it really, you know, we won 100 games that year. I think we beat the Dodgers 10 of 11 times that year. And that was a crusher. The other one was in with '85. I remember when uh, when when uh, Terry Pedleton did a home run off of McDowell. 
maybe it was eighty. I forget what the years were, but the one against yeah, the one the loss to the Dodgers at Chase Stadium was uh, was a crusher. We we had won that game and. Uh, you know, it still haunts me today, you know, because we had really dominated him during the regular season. Speaking with Jay Horowitz, the longtime Mets public relations executive, the title of his new book is Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. And I don't want to embarrass you, Jay. I don't, I don't want to get all mushy, but I got to say, you know, it always meant a lot to me. And you had the connection with my dad, but, you know, uh, I started off in this business as a young guy working in local TV at New York One right when it went on the air. And you treated, I thought you treated everybody with respect. And and it must have been at times just a difficult thing to do to manage the competing interests of the team, the players, and the media. And how did you balance that? It's a, it's a three-headed monster. My, I always had to remember... You know, the ownership, you had to make sure the ownership was okay with you. You know, the ownership thinks you're partial to the players and the media. The players, you think you're partial to the media. And the media thinks you're partial to the other two people. And it goes back to credibility. I just try to be fair to everybody. You know, I worked for a little bit in a small paper in New Jersey, you know, after I got out of college. And I always try to treat the, you know, every paper or like they were the New York Times, New York Post, or the Daily News, give them the same courtesies. They have a job to do, and not to just to funnel everything to, you know, to certain papers. Try to treat everybody as equal and take care of all the beat people who traveled with us. Jay, um, you know, when when you were doing this job and you were doing it for. So when you started doing this job, I should say, back in 19, how long did you think you could do it when you saw the pace of it and what it required and the total commitment and the travel? I mean, players, if they're lucky, have a 15-year career. If they're very lucky, you were doing this on the road for almost 40 years. How, how did you manage to sustain it for that long? You know what, Jeremy? Because it never really was work was like work to me. You know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of good friends in the office. Uh, we'd socialize, went to, you know, games, the college games at the end of the year. And again, like I say, it never was married. They became, it really became more than a job. It became an existence for me. It was my, was my, was my, was my second family. And it just, you know, I just never, you know, I, for, for about 20 or 30 years, I used to work the postseason too, you know, uh, and cause I enjoyed stayed in touch with the national guys and, and one year, I forget the year was, when the Phillies beat Tampa Bay in the World Series. I was on the mound in, in, in Veterans Stadium, where, where their, their park. I was doing interviews with Jimmy Rollins. He says, what am I doing? So I, I stopped doing I used to work the All-Star game. I just like the, you know, I like the competition. I like the travel. I like being around. The, I, I love the game. I love the game of baseball. What's the worst press box left in baseball? So many of them have been updated, new stadiums. Is there still a press box that's just too crowded and kind of uncomfortable? Well, well, they've, they've improved a little bit. Chicago was always tough. You know, it was, it was a small, the Wrigley Field. But, but they've, they've done it. Now, most of, most of the press boxes now are, are, are really pretty big. But, you know, the Wrigley Field was, the clubhouse was, you know, Wrigley Field was small, but they've expanded a little bit. Milwaukee was small, but they've expanded it. But, you know, um, most of the stuff is, you know, is pretty modern tech now. But I just remember the clubhouse, you know, Fenway Park during the World Series in 86 is always a tough place to work. You know, we had to walk out to the left field bullpen for the uh, for the press area. And, and we do, used to do the interviews in the runway. 
I remember in, in, when we, every time we played the Red Sox, the cars would come screeching by. You'd have to stand outside with the press, you know, as the, the beer cans go rolling by. But the, but most of the clubhouses and the press boxes are pretty good now. Jay, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, thank you for everything you've done for the media and baseball over the last 40 years. Jay Horowitz's book is Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of big leaguers. Thanks, Jay. Jeremy, thank you for your time and be safe, huh? This is the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It's a conversation that's been going on for a long time. Should teams have names such as Braves, Chiefs, Indians, Seminoles, and of course, most egregiously, Redskins? The owner of the Redskins, Dan Snyder, won't budge. He says the name will not change even in the face of mounting pressure. The issue is the subject of a documentary that is still in the process of being made, Imagining the Indian, the fight against Native American mascotting, co-directed and co-produced by Aviva Kempner. Her previous films include an acclaimed documentary on the life and times and influence of Hank Greenberg. Aviva, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And you should mention one of the stars of that is your late father, Dick Schaap, who just had some of the best lines in the movie. That's right. That's right. We go back a long way, Aviva and I, uh, the making of the Hank Greenberg documentary, which, uh, as you say, my father played such a big role. And I, I remember vividly the pink Nick Bollettieri sweatshirt he's wearing for the interviews and thinking, why didn't he wear something more appropriate? <laughs> yeah, but it was that golf outing and, you know, it was an informal atmosphere. He was just great. That's right. And by the way, if people don't know it, um, your uncle also was a, a great civil rights lawyer and a William. very good influence on me at the time as a law student. But thanks to the D.C. bar, I became a filmmaker. As I said, the, the Shaps and Aviva go back a long way. Let me start with you're from Washington. When do you first remember thinking this shouldn't be the name of our NFL team? Uh, it's a very good question. I came in 1973 here, and I came to go to law school having been two years in Vista in New Mexico. And there I worked with a lot of um, Native American activists. So as soon as I hit Washington, I knew it. It also helped that I am totally only a baseball person. I don't do football. I don't do basketball. So I didn't like the name, and I didn't like the sports. It was easy. And then I grew up in Detroit, which is why, of course, I did Hank Greenberg. And, you know, we have the Tigers and the Lions and the Red Wings. So there was never a question about a name being offensive. So I sort of ignored it. Um, but for my co-producers and co-director, it's very different. Both Ben West, who's my co-director, and Kevin Blackerstone and Sam Bradley, they are all big football fans. And Ben being native, um, he grew up here. And at, and at a certain point, he just realized, as through his father and others, that this was very offensive. And the reason Kevin came to me four years ago is he was very influenced by the long struggle and very vocal and very powerful struggle that Suzanne Harjo has waged against the name and realized um, and they will be in the final film. They're not in the trailer yet. Um, that this is wrong, that the the two other producers are African-American, and they said this is offensive. 
And, of course, I was in total agreement. So, And that's why I decided to do the film with Ben. So, Aviva, where, where does the film stand now? It's rare for us to be having a conversation about a film that's not yet available to be seen, that's still being made. Where, where does it? But it's been written about. It's uh, attracted a lot of attention. The project in this stage, where, where does it stand? Okay. Um, what often happens with independent films is you do a work in progress. So we're trying to show it at different festivals. There's one in Cooperstown in November called Glimmer Glass. We're hoping to get it ready possibly for Sundance, and we definitely would have had it ready. But, you know, if you're a filmmaker, the virus right now has uh, delayed production. So we're still doing a lot of research, and we're doing a lot of um, fundraising, and the the tribe that is supporting us is a co- uh, is an executive producer. Yerchadi is a casino tribe, and of course, they couldn't up until recently. I think they just maybe opened up this coming week uh, to some extent. Um, you know, everyone is hurting economically, and the the film production is part of it. Quite frankly, I'm loaning savings to just keep us going because we feel it's so important. And then, of course. The whole issue of Black Lives Matter has been very powerful in the footage we have. Whenever there's been these demonstrations against the name of the Washington football team, there's some members of uh, Black Lives Matter that have joined in because they understand the importance uh, of what a name can affect and, and, and trying to protest against an image. And you listen, as a filmmaker, I'm totally embarrassed because Hollywood has really perpetuated the Native American negative image more than anyone else in terms of how they portray how Native Americans are. Either they make fun of them or they just say they're violent and 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 don't really portray what happened. Ninety percent of Native American people that were on this uh, continent, the American continent, were were murdered. There was a total genocide of Native people. Only 10% remained after the white man came here. And people don't know that. And that's sort of the continuum, the continued insult in having names like the Washington football team. I'm sorry, I just can't say the name. We're speaking with Aviva Kempner. She is the co-director and co-producer of a documentary that we've been discussing, which is still in the process of being made. Uh, but you can view the trailer uh, the name of the documentary is Imagining the Indian, the Fight Against Native American Mascotting. And Aviva, you know, we've been we've talked about uh, this issue on the show before, something I've covered. I've been at ESPN for almost 27 years now, something we've been talking about, but it hasn't changed in terms of Washington. I, I, I am curious, um, what what is the sentiment now about, you know, um, Teams with names, other teams like Braves, Kansas City Chiefs, the Super Bowl champions, Cleveland Indians. Um, what, what, what is the position now on, on those names? That's exactly what I wanted to bring up. I think my, the sport I love, baseball, has had a baby steps. In terms of Cleveland Indians, they really heard uh, the protest call. And at least they removed uh, Chief Wahoo from being like on the, you know, in the stadium and doing pre-show things. And actually, uh, the national chairman, uh, actually National Congress of American Indians honored MLB, Major League Baseball, for uh, helping to change that. Although we have Rick West, who's 
the the cultural icon in the Native community because he started the Museum of the American Indian, saying that they still have the logo. So that's very important. It's the Braves and the Tomahawk Chop that we really have to talk about how they have to change it, and there are protests against it. But what's interesting, what happened the last playoffs, is Ryan Helsley, who's a a member of the Cherokee Nation. He's a pitcher, and he actually, as they were about to go into the playoffs against the Braves, um, when he went up to the mound and they were doing it, he he actually complained verbally. And that's the first time I believe that you've had a Native American player say, you know, against the Braves, you shouldn't do it. So it's all about the culture changing. And when people start bringing up something, and you know what happened last week, just before our trailer was, and our website was being um, premiered, you know, this is what the news is. AOC, the Congresswoman from New York, tweeted out, you know, it's a racist name. You've got to change the name. And I'm hoping with what Goodell said about being sensitive to his own um, players that are, I believe, what, 70, 70% African-American, that we have to be more sensitive to the issues that they're sensitive to. And one of those is the name of the Washington football team. And, you know, there's a history in Washington of owners changing names. The late great Abe Poland, who ran the basketball team and built the stadium here and really helped the city of uh, Washington, because there were such uh, so many murders in Washington, changed the name from Bullets to uh, Wizards, and uh, the Lerner family, who helped to bring ba- you know brought back baseball here, were very accepting when the city council said you can't call it senators because, in fact, I don't know if people don't know this, but we don't have we're not a state and we don't have voting mem- we don't have voting members in Congress, even though we pay taxes. And send our, you know, uh, our citizens to war. And so the reason we're not called the senators is because city council said you can bring a baseball team here, but for now you have to call the nationals. And so Dan Schneider could be a real hero if he changed the name. Now, if it's for economics, people have written that he could just then issue a whole new set of T-shirts and hats and footballs and, you know, be a real, as I know you know the word, a mensch, a a real good person to say, hey, this name is offensive. And in the 21st century, we can't have teams turning off people. Now, he also has trouble in terms of how many people are coming to the stadium, but that's also because the team has been losing a lot. Viva Kempter. She is now co-directing and co-producing Imagining the Indian, the fight against Native American mascotting, co-directing, co-producing with Ben West. Viva, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Phil Bildner has had an interesting career, or careers, I should say. He was a corporate attorney in New York. He was an elementary school teacher in New York City as well. But for the last 15 years or so, he's been writing children's books. About two dozen of them, many of them centered on the world of sports. His newest is A High Five for Glenn Burke, and it's a pleasure to welcome to the show Phil Bildner. Phil, thank you for being with us. 
Uh, thanks so much for having me. This is a thrill. So, Phil, how, how do you go from being an NYU law grad, a Johns Hopkins undergraduate, graduate, corporate law in New York, uh, to writing books for kids? Um, I guess it started in the classroom. I taught, you know, uh, elementary and middle school in the New York City public schools for 11 years. And I, more than anything, it's what my students inspired me to write. You know, we would do reading in class. We would do reading work workshop and writing workshop in class. And I'd have you know, more than anything, I felt as though you need to model the behavior. So I started doing reading and writing also. And sure enough, one thing led to another. And now I get to do this for a living. What kind of gratification do you get out of writing books for kids? Um, it's, it's a thrill. It's a thrill. The fact that there are schools and grownups and, and parents sharing my books with kids, it, it does the heart good knowing that, you know, when I was teaching, reading out loud, sharing books with my class was like the favorite part of the day. It was, it was a non-negotiable. I read out loud to my students every single day and knowing that that's happening with my books now is wonderful. So, so many, as I said, are set against the backdrop of sports. I'm looking at your catalog right now, the greatest game ever played, Colts and Giants, 41 uh, baseball season, DiMaggio and Williams, the shot heard around the world, Bobby Thompson, even uh, Joe Jackson, say it ain't so, Joe, although the book is titled Shoeless Joe and Black Betsy. I mean, great stories from the world of sports. Why do you think these stories uh, resonate the way they do with kids? I think it's a common language that so many of us speak. You know, oftentimes we look for you know, entryways and different ways to connect with one another. And so often it's sports. And I think it's one of the things right now that we're missing. We're missing live sports. We're missing that moment of that element of connect- connectivity right now that so many of us rely on it as a way to, like, relate to one another. And I always tell kids, you know, you write about what you know and care about. And growing up, I played sports. I love sports. So when you're passionate about something and you love it, it's going to come across in your work. We're speaking to the acclaimed children's book author, Phil Bildner. His latest is A High Five for Glenn Burke. And for those in the audience, and there are many of them, of course, at this point, who don't know Glenn Burke's story, would you give us a synopsis of the Glenn Burke story, not necessarily just the book, Phil? Sure, absolutely. So Glenn Burke was a Major League Baseball player in the 1970s. He played for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He had a a cup of coffee in 1976, and then he played for quite some time in 1977. And he was pretty highly touted. He was a five-tool talent, and people thought he was going to have a wonderful career for them. And essentially, the story goes in the 77 season, you know, the Dodgers, they were, they were a force. They made it to the World Series that year. And the last weekend of the season, they had three players with 30 or more home runs. They had Steve Garvey, Reggie Smith, Ron Say, and no team in baseball history had ever had four players with 30 home runs on the same team in the same season. And Dusty Baker at the time had 29. And heading into that last weekend of the season, they played, they played the Houston Astros, and Dusty Baker didn't hit a home run on, on Friday night, didn't hit a home run on Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon, the Dodgers had to face J.R. Richard at Chavez Ravine. And the famously hard-throwing J.R. Richard, whose career would eventually be cut short by a stroke or, or a couple of strokes, but he was fearsome. Uh, he, he was dominant. I mean, he, he was he was one of the most like menacing pitchers. Like you know, people like he was he was he was one of those dominant forces in the league at that time. And his third at bat, um, which might have been his last at bat of the day, Dusty Baker hit his thirtieth home run of the season. And when he got to home plate, the on deck batter was Glenn Burke. Now Glenn Burke was 
many people considered him the heart and soul of that Dodger clubhouse, of that Dodger dugout. You know, he was just this bundle of energy, and he would always be singing and dancing and performing comedy and doing sketches. Um, he'd even make fun of Tommy Lasorda in the dugout where he'd stuff like pillows in his jersey and waddle up and back and forth. And I don't think <laughs> Tommy liked that, enjoyed that too much. But so Dusty Baker runs around the bases, and when he gets to home plate, you know, Glenn Burke just waves his hand in the air, air wildly and gives him the first high five. And, of course, there's no video footage of it. There is a still photo of it, but there is no video footage of that first high five. The first high five ever, you're saying. That's correct. That is the beginning of what we now know as, and which currently, of course, is out of favor, uh, uh, the high five. That is correct. This was the, this is like you know, most people consider this the high five. This is the the origin story. And then Glenn Burke came up to bat and hit his first major league home run against J.R. Richard. And then when he circled the bases and got back to the dugout, Dusty Baker gave him the second high five, and it started from there. We're speaking with Phil Bildner. His new book for kids, picture book, is a high five for Glenn Burke. But this is a story that is about much more than the origins of the high five. That's correct. So the book is a middle grade novel. And when we talk about a middle grade novel, we mean for kids ages 9 to 12 or 10 to 13. It's with those kids who have like their hands and faces pressed up against like the windows of adolescence. And it's the story of Silas Wade, who's the 12-year-old baseball player, star center fielder of his team. And he's got he's a chill kid, but he's kind of a goof also. You know, he likes to sing karaoke with his best friend. He can um, recite every line and reenact every scene from The Sandlot, and in, um, which is one of my favorite movies. So, of course. So, in, in language arts class, in ELA class, the kids are all given an assignment where they have to do an oral presentation on, a, on an inventor. And Silas chooses Glenn Burke, but he leaves out the most important part, arguably, of the Glenn Burke story. And Glenn Burke was a gay Major League Baseball player. And Silas doesn't share this with his classmates, but for Silas, this is his first baby step towards coming out as gay. It's him cracking open the door. It's his moment. Because coming out isn't a moment. It's a journey. It's a lifelong journey. So for this 12-year-old boy, who's an athlete, it's his first time really wanting to, you know, express to the world that he wants to live his authentic life, even though others aren't always willing to make a place on the field for everyone. And it becomes a story about acceptance and respect for everyone's humanity. What's been the reaction um, to this book uh, dealing with this issue, the LGBTQ um, story for kids, uh, holding up a mirror, as you said, what's been the reaction? It's actually been overwhelmingly positive and incredible. I was fortunate enough um, to be able to go on tour right before we hit the pause. I was able to go on a, a short tour. My publisher, Macmillan, Farrell, Strauss, and Giroux, Giroux sent me out on a, a tour. And for them to actually support a book like this is not lost on me. And I got to visit schools and do bookstore appearances for this book. And, and, and the response was overwhelming. And can I tell a quick story about, about one experience in Denver, which really kind of, you know, capsulized everything for me. Um, it was, um, I was in, it was on a, a Friday afternoon. I was visiting a school in Denver and, and I was speaking to fourth graders and the teacher has actually been starting to read the book out loud to the class, which for me, any teacher reading my book out loud is like, a, I, I love that teacher that she can do no wrong. So she's reading my book out loud to the class. And earlier that day, 
You know, they had gotten to the point in the book where Silas, the main character, had came out to his friend. And then she dismissed the class for lunch and, moved, and all the kids left for lunch. But one kid stayed behind and he started crying like, uh, like uncontrollably. He was not consolable. And it took a long time for him to regain his composure. And the teacher was actually concerned that someone had done something to him. Was he OK? And finally, when the kid was able to regain his composure, he asked the teacher if he could tell her something that he's never told anyone before. And he whispered in her ear, he said, I'm like Silas. And for me, yeah, I mean, and I've, you just can't be prepared for a moment like that ever. And I mean, I've been told that I, I, with some of my authors who do write LGBTQ books for kids and for teens, they said, you know, be prepared. Those moments are going to happen. And you can try and prepare, but nothing could recognize that. You, you, you know that your book has the opportunity to change lives and save lives. But when it does like that, it's, it's just, it's indescribable. And I was able, I asked the teacher if I was able to, to meet the kid, if I was, if I can speak to the kid, because, you know, when you have those moments as, as a former teacher and as an athlete, you, you visualize certain moments, like you go, what would I do in this situation if this situation ever arose? And I got to speak to this kid and I got to meet this kid and I got to tell this kid, you know, I got to tell him like how proud I was of his. And I said, I didn't know you, but, but I do know you. And I said, like, you're so much braver than I ever was at his age. And I told him he was going to have a beautiful life, but things were going to suck at times. They definitely weren't going to suck, but it would get better. It would get better. He was going to find a family and friends and people would love him for who he is. And I got to tell him that he would get to be the hero of his own story. And I said to him, all the things that I needed to hear at that age, and they're kind of things I still need to hear sometimes, but in that moment, you know, I, I, I got to be who I needed when I was younger. And it's why I wrote this book. This was the book I wrote for middle school me when I was 12 years old. I didn't know gay kids could play sports. I didn't know queer kids could be athletes. I thought I was all alone in the world in a book like this it would have provided me with so much hope. Phil Bildner's latest is a high five for Glenn Burke. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life and good luck with the book. Jeremy, this was wonderful. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.